Creative Power, Chapter 2, The Imaging Faculty. One of the most characteristic, essential, and distinctive attributes of your mental being is the power of producing mental images. Without this power, you would be unable to think, to remember, to act intelligently. If your sensations did not impress themselves upon your mind so that it was afterward possible for you to recall them as images, you would always remain a mere infant in mental development. Your experience would remain as a closed book to you, and you could never hope to profit by turning over the pages of its records. You would be no wiser at 50 years of age than you were at three. You would have no memory, no imagination, no power of rational thought based upon experience. A mental image may be defined as a representation in the mind by means of an ideal picture of an experience originally obtained through the medium of the senses. By representation is meant the act of representing or presenting a new in consciousness, the form or picture originally experienced through sense reports. The representative powers of the mind, whether of memory or of imagination are those powers of the mind whereby it forms ideal images or mental pictures of things not present to the senses at the time. Such ideal images or mental pictures being the mental reproduction of any experience whatsoever. While the term image is borrowed from optics in order to symbolize the retained mental impressions of past experiences, the figurative term must not be too literally interpreted. Not only are the images or pictures of visual impressions and experiences retained in the mind and are possible of representation or reproduction in memory or imagination, but the impressions of sound, taste, smell, touch, and muscular sensations are equally retained and are subject to reproduction. There are auditory, gustatory, olfactory, tactile and muscular images or pictures in the mind, as well as visual or optical images or pictures. In fact, the completed and composite mental image or picture of any particular thing usually is a complex product made up of the interwoven material of several kinds of sense reports. There is a close relation, yet a marked difference between the original sense impression and its represented image or picture. After an object is removed from vision or the eyes shut, there remains in the mind the image of the thing seen, actually existent, though more obscure than when it was perceived in vision. The same principle applies to images of impressions received through the other senses. Aristotle called these images the phantasms, which have the form of the object without the substance, as the impression of a seal upon wax has the form of the seal without its substance. Psychologists have held that sensations have their origin in the objective stimuli, while the represented image has its stimulation from within. It is generally held by psychologists that no sensation is actually perceived by the mind until a mental image of it is formed. Likewise, that the mind cognizes no physical experiences unless they give rise to mental images. 
The mind perceives, understands, and remembers nothing but mental images. Recollection, imagination, and the processes of thought are held to be possible only by means of calling up and arranging the mental images of things which have originally arisen through sense experience. Even the higher operations of thought, such as judgment, reasoning, abstraction, generalization, combination of ideas, proceed by means of the employment of previously acquired mental images. The two great classes of mental representation are one, memory, and two, imagination. In spite of the popular distinction between these two phases of mental activity, there is present in them a basic unity of nature and essential principle. Both are processes involving the employment of representative images, and there is really no absolute line of de demarcation between them or their products. It was formally held that there existed an actual distinction between the two respective processes, the line of which was drawn as follows. One, memory reproduces or represents the exact image of the original mental impression, while two, imagination reproduces or represents a variation of such original impression or a new combination of the elements of original impressions. But this absolute distinction or differentiation is not held generally by the best modern psychologists. The present opinion is that even the best memory images do not exactly reproduce the original impression. Instead, they always admit certain portions add details not in the original and exhibit changes in arrangement of details. It is now stated as a law of psychology that representative images never exactly reproduce the original impression. This is true of the images of memory as well as those of imagination. There is of course admitted that some representative images more closely approach exact reproduction than do others. Some are more literal copies of things experienced than, the, than are others. But the elements of variation, change, addition, or commission are always present and active. You may arrive at a correct understanding of the real distinction between the processes of memory and those of imagination by considering the four essential elements involved in the process of completed memory. Those are one, retention, in which the mind retains the image of the impression made upon it by the sense reports. Two, reproduction, in which the mind brings again into consciousness the mental image which it has retained. Number three, recognition, in which the mind identifies the reproduced mental image with the object, causing the original impression. And four, localization, in which the mind locates the original impression, which has been recognized, at a certain more or less definite time and place. Now then, what are the elements involved in the process of imagination? First, you will see at once that the element of retention must be involved, as otherwise the mental image could never be again brought into the consciousness. Secondly, you will see that the element of reproduction must be involved, as otherwise the mind would lack the power to bring again into consciousness the retained mental image. So far, at least, imagination and memory travel along the same road. For in both cases, the mind must possess and exercise the power of retaining the mental image and also the power of reproducing it in consciousness. But here the absolute identity of the two processes cease. 
The stream of representation divides itself into two branches, each of which pursues its own special course. The course of the memory stream has been described in the preceding paragraph. That of the stream of imagination you are now asked to consider. In what is called reproductive imagination, the mind merely reproduces a more or less correct mental image or picture of a previously experienced impression, which has been retained in its subconscious storehouse. This you will notice precisely what memory does in its first and second processes. Here, the process may be regarded as that either of reproductive imagination or of the memory. Or the idea may be stated in another form. That is, reproductive imagination is but a special instance of incompleted memory, or else memory is a special case of reproductive imagination. There is no absolute line of distinction between the images of reproductive imagination and those of memory in its second stage. Both are the same product of the representative or imaginative power. But as we have said, here the identity ceases. In true memory, the reproduced image is now referred to the object causing the original impression. It is identified with that object by the process of recognition. But in reproductive imagination, the mind does not perform the process of full recognition, i.e. identification with the object causing the original impression. At the most, the reproductive imagination performs but a quasi-recognition, i.e. it identifies the image with some image previously experienced in consciousness, but with no special effort to identify it with the particular original object. In fact, the image may be a composite of several original impressions, not referable to any special object, as when we are conscious of the image of a horse, of a general picture of the horse species, rather than of some particular horse. There is a difference between A, having a mental image in consciousness, and B, knowing that image as the image of a particular something previously experienced in consciousness. The image may be there, though the recollection of the particular original object of the experience may be absent. As a writer says, having the image of an absent object and remembering the object are not the same. There is no complete act of memory of an absent object until the image in the mind is recognized as the image of some particular object or thing already experienced. Thus you see that an image may be reproduced in imagination but not recognized or identified with any particular object previously experienced. Likewise, it may be reproduced in imagination without being localized according to time and place. This true reproductive imaginative images may exist without involving the third and fourth essential elements of memory. In short, while memory involves the four respective elements of retention, reproduction, recognition, and localization, the process of reproductive imagination involves but two of these elements, that is retention and reproduction respectively. The representative stream of memory imagination divides into two streams just before the third stage, i.e. recognition, is reached by memory and quite a bit before the fourth stage, i.e. localization is neared. But though the stream of imagination lacks the two additional elements of memory, it takes on new and more complex powers of its own, 
powers lacking in the case of memory. As the stream flows on, reproductive imagination may become transformed into what is known as constructive imagination. This by the exercise of certain powers inherent in the nature of imagination. Constructive imagination is that phase of the imaginative activities, which is generally regarded as being typical of imagination in general. In fact, it is the only phase of imagination known as imagination to most persons. Categories of imagination. The imaginative processes are classified into two respective categories as follows. One, reproductive imagination, and two, constructive imagination. Reproductive imagination, which we have just considered, consists merely of mental reproduction of images of past experiences and exercise of reminiscent imaging power, differing little, if any, from the representative or reproductive activities of memory. Reproductive imagination, which we have just considered, consists merely of mental reproduction of images of past experiences and exercise of reminiscent imaging power, differing little, if any, from the representative or reproductive activities of memory. Constructive imagination, on the contrary, consists of A, reproductive imaginative images, and B, subjected to the additional processes of reconstruction, recombination, and readaptation. Reproductive imagination represents merely the images corresponding to particular past experiences. Constructive imagination, on the contrary, represents images of past experiences, not in their original form, however, but instead recombined, rearranged, reconstructed, and readapted, thus forming a composite or complex mental image of things not previously experienced as wholes by the mind producing them, and often even of things having no actual existence as wholes in the external world. Thus, constructive imagination may form a mental image of a house, bridge, railway system, ship, etc., not yet built. Or it may form a mental image of centaurs, Winged steeds, mermaids, winged angels, satanic forms with hoofs, horns, and tails, which are entirely out of the realm of actual human experience. In constructive imagination, we have a most important element of the constructive intellectual work performed by the mind of man. Without it, certain phases of reasoning would be impossible. Without it, the psychological process of association would not be manifested. Without it, the inventive faculties could not function. Without it, there could be no artistic creation. Without it, there could be no progress, no improvement, no discovery of new relations, no creative thought, no adaptation of old things to new uses and new ends. As Halleck says, the products of the constructive imagination have been the only stepping stones for material progress. The constructive imagination of primeval man, aided by thought, began to conquer the world. The chimney, the stagecoach, the locomotive are successive milestones showing the progressive march of the imagination. Constructive imagination may be said to have two phases. Number one, passive construction, or the employment of the constructive powers of the imagination along the lines of pure fancy or idle daydreaming and two, active construction, 
or employment of the constructive powers of imagination along the lines of definite, purposeful, creative effort. In passive construction, the imagination may dally with the reminiscent images of past experiences, rearranging and recombining them into new forms, picturing idly the might-have-been aspects of those experiences and indulging in imaginative fancies in which the past experiences are transformed into other experiences of a more agreeable or more exciting nature. Or in the same way, the imagination may project itself into the future of the life of the individual, indulging in daydreams in which are anticipated or imagined the possible experiences of that future. Or again, it may passively permit the stream of imaginative images, the moving picture film of fancy to pass before its vision picturing as in a play or a story, the various movements of actors, the various scenes, actions, voices, situations of the imaginative play or story. Here, the whole picture is composed of a series of separate though connected pictures as in the moving picture connected film, seen as an actual continuous movement. This passive construction has about it many of the characteristic qualities of the dream states in which the imagination runs itself without any special direction. Many cases of its activity have well been called daydreams, for they indeed are practically composed of the stuff that dreams are made of. The imaginative stream flows along obeying merely the law of association and lacking direction or voluntary guidance. Or stating it otherwise, the boat of imagination is allowed to drift along aimlessly without the use of the helm, the pilot being wrapped in sleep or reverie. Those who can see in constructive imagination merely the passive phases just noted are perhaps justified in their sneers at mere imagination, for they judge only by what they see in that category. Those on the other hand who realize the tremendous importance of active constructive imagination in the intellectual life of the individual may well be pardoned for indignantly refuting the charges of the first named critics and for terming them ignorant and thoughtless critics of that with which they have never met in their own experience. Each is right according to his own viewpoint, but the viewpoints are as far apart as the poles. Yet the two poles of anything at the last are perceived to be necessary parts of the unified whole. Let us endeavor to illustrate the case of imagination by reference to the better known phases of will. Here we shall find a surprising analogy, one not generally recognized. We ask you to give careful attention and thought to what follows. Reboat says, which among the various modes of mind activity offers the closest analogy to the creative imagination? I unhesitatingly answer the voluntary activity of the will. Imagination in the realm of the intellect is the equivalent of will in the realm of movements. The analogy between imagination and will manifests from the very beginning of each of these mental processes. In voluntary action, there is gathered together the raw materials of instinctive, involuntary, and reflex movements. The will coordinates and associates these in order to proceed. In the same way, active constructive imagination gathers together the raw materials of reproductive imagination 
and passive constructive imagination, the various images existing in those fields of mentality in order that it may proceed further. Then again, the movement in both instances is from the inner mental state toward the outer expression. Will begins with vague feelings and emotions, these rising to more or less definite desire. This in turn proceeds to actual outward expression in actions. So active constructive imagination begins with the inner images of memory or reproductive imagination. These then rising to the rank and character of the images of passive constructive imagination. These in turn rising to the rank and character of definite outward expression in the stages of active constructive imagination. Again, in will rising to its higher stages, we always find present a more or less definite movement toward a certain end to be attained. The same more or less definite object to be attained is present in the rising processes of active constructive imagination. The will always proceeds toward the attainment of something desired, something tending to satisfy some inner want. In active constructive imagination, there is always present the urge toward the invention, creation, or construction of something more or less clearly perceived. As Reboot says, we are always inventing for an end, whether in the case of a Napoleon imagining a plan of campaign or a cook making up a new dish. In both cases, there is now a simple end attained by immediate means, now a complex and distant goal presupposing subordinate ends, which are means in relation to the final end. Finally, we will find in both will and the active constructive imagination certain frequent instances and manifestations of incomplete process of aborted expression. Will in its normal and completed expression culminates in action, but in actual experience, this final action often is not reached. One may desire to do a thing and even deliberately decide and determine to do that thing, but the spring of action is never released. One may desire to arise from his bed on a cold morning and may decide and determine to do so, but he still remains beneath the warm covers. So in passive constructive imagination, one may content himself with idle passive daydreaming and never proceed deliberately to make his dreams come true. <clears throat> Rebo says concerning this last point, there are likenesses between the abortive forms of the creative imagination and the impotent forms of the will. In its normal and complete form, will culminates in an act, but with wavering characters and sufferers from abulia, deliberation never ends or the resolution remains inert incapable of realization of asserting itself in action. The creative imagination also in its complete form has a tendency to become objectified, to assert itself in a work that shall exist not only for the creative individual, but for everybody. On the contrary, with dreamers pure and simple, the imagination remains a vaguely sketched inner affair. It is not embodied in any aesthetic or practical invention. Reverie is the equivalent of weak desires and incompleted will. Dreamers are the abulics of the creative imagination. We wish to point out another analogy here. The passive and active respective forms of the constructive imagination 
may be aptly compared to the respective involuntary and voluntary phases of attention. Involuntary attention is that form of attention in which the mind goes out toward any passing object which serves to arouse mere curiosity or transient notice. This form of attention is the one most strongly manifested by the child or by the savage. Moreover, it is the kind of attention which alone is generally manifested by the great masses of persons. Voluntary attention, on the other hand, is that form of attention in which the mind is deliberately and determinedly directed toward and held upon some definite object or subject to the end that knowledge concerning such may be acquired. This form of attention distinguishes the mind of the true student, the scientific mind, and the trained mind in general. The analogy between these two respective forms of attention and the two respective forms of constructive imagination is so close that we need but to direct your attention to it, further comparison being unnecessary. Thus you have seen there are two distinct forms or phases of constructive imagination. Number one, passive, and number two, active. The former you have now just considered. The latter you are now asked to consider. Note, in our further consideration of active constructive imagination in the following sections of this book, we shall drop the term active constructive imagination and shall substitute the general term constructive imagination. This latter term being far more convenient than the former cumbersome technical term and equally well expressing the essential idea embodied in the general concept of constructive imagination actively employed toward definite aims and ends.